0: Hi, this is Rebecca Buchanan, host of New Books Network, New Books, and Popular Culture. And today I'm here with Allison Gilbert, who, along with Julia Shears, is the author of Listen World, How the Intrepid Elsie Robinson Became America's Most Read Woman. Thanks for being here with me today, Allison.
1: Oh my gosh, I am so honored. Thank you for having me.
0: So I'm really excited for you to kind of Before I read this, I'd never heard about Elsie Robinson. So how did this come about? How did you and um, Julia come about writing this book?
1: Yeah, you're not alone. Nobody has heard of Elsie Robinson. It was a find, and we are so thrilled that we're able to share her now with the world. Um, I only learned about Elsie Robinson um, because I found a poem that she wrote hidden inside a book that my mother had. And when I was cleaning out my mother's home, my childhood home after my mother died, I had a lot of trouble just packing up her books and taping them away and shipping them off. And I opened every single book that my mother kept. I wanted to see what she annotated. I wanted to see if she underlined things. I was just seeking so much connection with my mom And lo and behold, a piece of paper fluttered to the ground, and it was a poem attributed to someone whose name I did not recognize, and that name is Elsie Robinson.
0: And so how did then, did you kind of, because, and you talk about this a little in the book, but... it's not digitized. Her work isn't really out there and available. So how did you then go about kind of finding out about her and then um, realizing that she's someone we need to know about?
1: That is such a great question. And you're right, because she was so famous in her day, and because she had been lost to history, no one spent the time excavating her story. And so you're right, Elsie Robinson's columns. We did the calculation and the research. She wrote about 9,000 columns in her lifetime. She was a nationally syndicated newspaper columnist. Her column was called Listen, World! That's why we named the book Listen, World. She had a lot to say, and she was not afraid to say it. And that was back in the 1920s. 1930s, all the way through the 1950s. Her run was impressive from the 1920s all the way to the 1950s. She had this column and she spoke her mind. And when we were looking for her work, we went through databases that were only uh, in libraries. We had to go through archives that had warehouses to find their clips that were held off site. Some of her best writing were in old magazines that have not been scanned. And so if you wanted to find her, you had to do the digging. And boy, it took us 11 years to do the reporting. This was not an easy feat, but boy, what a labor of absolute joy.
0: So from this we get the first biography, right? The first book length biography on this woman. So could you tell us, um, because like me, I'm sure most people don't know who she is, <laughs> a little bit about her and the sort of the beginnings and then we can get into sort of the the fascinating life that she had. So Well, Elsie Robinson was truly a marvel
1: when she was hired by William Randolph Hearst in 1924. I don't think anyone could have expected how her career would just take off. Now, at the time, we have to remember who William Randolph Hearst was was. He was the guy when it came to media in the United States. He owned, he operated, he ran, he published. He was a media tycoon. So for her to be brought under his umbrella and to write for all the Hearst papers, plus the papers in the country who ran Hearst syndicated features, she became his highest paid woman writer in the entire organization and so she was somewhat of a powerful writer because her platform reached more than 20 million readers a day and we did the calculations it was about 9000 columns and articles in her entire career in her body of work so she was she was just quite a tremendous woman who also, I should say, really fought for what she was worth. She didn't roll over and just say, oh, thank you so much for this opportunity. She demanded the right pay. She demanded time off. She demanded the help that she needed to get the work done. So in all of that taken together, she is someone whose memory deserves to be resurrected. And so Julia, my co-author, and I are so pleased to kind of reintroduce Elsie Robinson uh, to readers.
0: So another really sort of fascinating thing that you were able to do with this book is find um, a lot of her sort of journals and writing and kind of combine it with your story to be able to tell her story. Um, And so and, and at one point, I think in there you wrote that there was at some point she started burning some of that um, because of a relationship because of her husband and not wanting him to read it. So where did you find that um, those journals and where were you able to sort of do that and incorporate that her voice? Well, here's the interesting thing. So my
1: background is as a journalist and many years I spent as an investigative journalist. So I love digging. I love rolling up my sleeves. I love getting my fingers dirty. That is just, to me, that's the fun. We found out that she actually went to school in the Northeast at a school called Northfield Seminary. And this is back at the turn of the century. She was literally enrolled uh, in 1900. So, when I, well, she graduated high school in 1900, then she went to this next school on, on the East Coast. That school is still in existence. So I reached out to the archivist there. There's an archivist on staff. And lo and behold, you just have to ask the questions. They had her entire transcripts, her folder, her writings. And because they also saved the school newspapers from that time, we were able to find Elsie Robinson's first writings that were in the school paper, which to me is an incredible find to show as a teenager. um, what was she interested in? What kinds of stories was she telling? And even before that, I should say, um, she grew up um, not too far from the Bay Area in a neighborhood in a town called Benicia, California. And even there at Benicia High School, we went through those records and we found that she too was published Back then, so even earlier. So we did the work, you know, we really um, rolled up our sleeves and, 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 and went to work and I think we found a lot of incredible stories and poetry and what motivated her later on to keep writing is part of the story too that we explore in Listen World in our biography. Mm-hmm.
0: And so, um, just a little bit. She was born, as you say, in, um, California and ended up in the East Coast because she, um, got married. And then can you talk a little bit? It took her, a, you know, a while to get into writing it. and she can, so can you talk a little bit about what happened with her once she moved to the East Coast and how that kind of started to cement this writer in her?
1: Yes well like so many of us we turn to writing when things sometimes are great and we turn to writing when sometimes things are just awful in our lives and we use it as a place to vent and really understand our feelings and that was the case with Elsie when she was a young child she wrote because things were joyful in California and then she turned to writing again when things were awful she was married uh, in a miserable as she would say I'm not speaking turn you know tongues it was a miserable marriage. Um, she was way too young. He was too old. He was cold. She wanted passion and fire. And he was really, uh, very much towing the family line and didn't want to give her that much space for that kind of artistic freedom. And so she slowly began to feel suffocated and she found this outlet in writing. And eventually, back when no woman would dare to leave her husband. this is back in 19 you know12, she left. she left her husband with her son who was chronically ill to live a bigger, independent life. And I can't tell you in 1912 what a rarity that was. Divorce is not what divorce is today. Women really ran the risk of being completely ostracized, um, of being cut off from society, that it was a scandal uh, that we can't really appreciate today. Um, But she did it. She wanted this bigger life. And I would say too, fueled in part, if you remember this, What sank in 1912? What was all over the headlines? It was that sinking of the Titanic. You know, she had Irish blood. She had English blood. Those people were on that ship and died. I think she saw those headlines. They were all over the news. And she was like, I had this one life to live and I'm going to go do it. I need to be a writer.
0: Yes and one thing that um you do throughout this book is kind of show how that writing helped to shape her to talk about these things um it, the divorce the the divorce comes back right and she uses writing as a way to to ensure that she has her son she has you know she gets to be the parent for her son again like i think you do a nice job of also looking at Yes, how it was how not only divorce was different, but parenting was different, what that might have meant for her and how she really fought to keep her child and to keep him in a space where she wanted him to be safe and feel that and feel better.
1: Well, you know, part of it, too, I would say that she doesn't get always a free pass of being like mother of the year. You know, she did things that I think we would look at today as being very, Dicey, Um, her son, who I mentioned before, I think, was chronically ill his entire life. So he was frail and he was having a lot of trouble breathing where they were on the East Coast. It was too cold. It was too wet. It was, you know, all these things conspired to make his respiratory ailment that much more pronounced. So she saw salvation, healing, this potential for a new life in the dry air of California and where she ended up which I would say would make many mothers kind of cringe, was to make ends meet. If you can believe this, she went to the gold mines of California. And for three years, she was the sole woman on a crew of men working at one particular mine in the foothills of the Sierra Nevada to make ends meet. And many times her son was there with her because by her calculation, What could be worse, having your son next to you in a dangerous gold mine where people, by the way, die. It is dangerous work working in a gold mine or for him to have an asthmatic attack at home in this hut where they were living without her being there to help him. And of course, at that time, we think asthma today, oh, whatever, go grab your inhaler. Yeah, there were no inhalers Back then. And so an asthmatic attack could literally mean a death sentence. And so, faced with those two options, uh, she brought her son to a very dangerous mine day after day so they can make ends meet.
0: So I was really fascinated by the whole mining, <laughs> the mining town and mining experience. I know. Wasn't and it amazing? It, it was amazing. And I love, like, that you were able to find a photo, fo- like, you have a photograph of, like, so There, one thing you have throughout this are photographs of her, which is really great. But there's a photograph of, like, the typewriter that she probably learned to work on. And and I, I'm like, I, there's another biography here with the woman who runs the post office. Um <laughs> But like, so she kind of learned to type, like, could you like, her work ethic is insane. Um, And so can you talk a little bit about like that and what you found there? Yes, I'm so glad that
1: you brought that up. That was one of my favorite parts of reporting this book was going to this ghost town, what is literally now a ghost town, your listeners can literally go on Google and literally put in the put in the word hornitos. California, H O R N I T O S, Hornitos, California. And it is literally nearly a ghost town today. But back in the day when Elsie was there, it was really the center point of where all of these um, mining families lived. Um, And that's where Elsie and her son George decamped when they wanted to go work in the mine. And that typewriter that you were talking about, she became very friendly with a woman in town who helped to run that post office. Her her name, her last name is Rogers. And what's interesting about Luola Rogers is that she is the daughter of a former slave, Moses Rogers. And he was a prominent man, um, entrepreneur in the motherlode of California. Anyway, Luola and Elsie became wonderful friends. And it was her who found this ancient typewriter, this old typewriter, manual typewriter, of course, to give Elsie when Elsie knew that her manuscripts, if she wanted to sell them, they had to be typed. She could not write them by hand. And so if you can imagine this, sitting on a cardboard box with the light of a kerosene, you know, lamp, Typing out after a long day, an arduous day of gold mining, after George was put to bed, when she finally had a moment of rest and a moment of peace, that is when she taught herself how to type. And, you know, back then, they taught people, mostly women, we can say this, how to type by not looking at the keys, by repetitive, activities. And so she got those types of books to teach her how to type. And so she did. She taught herself how to type. And we found what we are 99.9% certain is her actual typewriter. And we know this because we worked with typewriter experts who were able to help us date that typewriter, the vintage, and how long it had been in this long shuttered post office and it matches completely.
0: I have to say that as a typewriter fan and a fan of the, this is awesome. I
1: know it was such a discovery and I'm so glad we can um, put those photographs in the book.
0: So, so she, also, and another thing we haven't mentioned is that she kind of started as an illustrator. She also drew right like so she not only was writing these things, she was also illustrating. And and again, throughout the book, you have some of her illustrations in there. So, can like can you talk about that role as well and her as an illustrator? So it's
1: really important to say that when Elsie Robinson began her nationally syndicated column that was called Listen comma, world, exclamation point. She did so by also illustrating her columns, by providing the editorial or political cartoons, as some people would say, that went alongside them. I can't emphasize enough how historians today Curators who are more expert than I am about the evolution of cartooning in the United States, who are experts in the history of illustration in newspapers in the United States, they say two things. One, it is completely unusual and uncommon for a writer to also provide her own illustrations. I say her because that's Elsie Robinson, but really male or female. Normally, those are two separate silos of talent. You either have a writer or you have an illustrator. And generally speaking, an illustrator will get the writing from a columnist, be inspired by what was written, and then they will then you know, write and draw and do their political cartooning. Elsie Robinson did both. And by the way, that is why she was such a unicorn. And that is why she ended up getting paid as much as she did, and why her longevity is so impressive. You know, more than 30 years to write a column is um, exceptional, even by today's standards. And they say what she did is historic. Uh, she is one of the first columnists in the entire country, male or female, to both write and draw her own editorial cartoons. And they were sharp. I mean, you saw them. You've seen them in the book, Listen World. They are exceptionally provocative. They are stirring. And there are some that didn't even make the books. We can only include so many. But they are actually shocking. You know, she takes on capital punishment and she shows um a death uh you know in silhouette form. She has other ones that we did not put in the book that were equally um you know jaw-dropping to my co-author Julia and me um that we will give uh, air to uh in another way but we couldn't put them all in the book but even back in the 1920s, um, she was making people think not just by her words, but by her uh, illustrations.
0: Right, and. She also sort of got into the newspaper business by just sort of going in and being like, hey, will you, you know, she didn't know what she was doing when she first started. She's just like, I know I can write and I know that can help. Um, and so can you talk a little bit about that, those first columns? Like she started with a children's, like just one column, right, for a children's piece that she um was sort of given the freedom to do. Can you talk a little bit about, because I thought that was fascinating too, those children's columns and those, that what she did there. Yeah, you know what?
1: I love that you asked me that question because I think she, Elsie's story, I think gives me hope. I think whatever it is that you want to do in life, if there's no roadmap, Elsie can literally show you that all you need is your Interest and your passion and your ability to go get them. So, what I mean by that is you were right, she had no experience, but she learned at the very, very beginning of her career when she was in the Bay Area in California that the Oakland Tribune newspaper did not have a children's section. And she was a good illustrator. She knew how to draw. She drew for her son. You know, we talked about him being sick. And so to pass the time, you know, in a day long before, you know, the internet or television, you know, even the radio. um, She passed the time by drawing um, pictures for her son, George. And so she knew she had talent. And so she put two and two together and she walked into the offices of the Oakland Tribune, showed a mock-up of what maybe a children's column could look like, And she convinced the editor, the entire boss of the Oakland Tribune, to give her a shot. And he did. And she became a huge success at the Oakland Tribune. They named an entire section after her. They called it Aunt Elsie's Magazine. And so... um, What's instructive to me, though, is that your listeners may not want to be writers themselves. Maybe they are just satisfied reading an excellent book, and that's fantastic. But I think what was so attractive to me about Elsie's story is that no matter what the it is that you want, she just went for it. She didn't have any contacts. She didn't lean on rich relatives to kind of glide path her way into this incredible cushy job. She gritted it out. She grinded it out. And like, isn't that what we all have to do
0: when it comes down to it? Yeah. And, and I'd love, too, that, like, these children's articles, like, you found some people that you were able to talk to who remember and were part of sort of, like, the. I ch- felt like it was, like, this precursor to things like the Mickey Mouse Club and all of that, right? Like, it was really great. Like, so... Even, there's this history of Elsie, but there's also this larger sort of history of kind of what was going on in popular culture at that time and how she was sort of creating these cultural spaces.
1: 100%. We did. We did track down some of her fans. What she did as Aunt Elsie is that she she was a smart marketer. She was savvy. She was a great business Because as we know today, using our current vocabulary, the more interactive we are, right? The more we're going to get our audience to feel that they are involved in the creation of something amazing, to be a part of a community. These are things we're thinking about today. Elsie Robinson did it way back in the early 1900s. She invited children to submit their poetry, Their short stories, their drawings, um, anything that they wanted to see in print. And of course, she would print them because of who doesn't want to see their name in print. And so that got her fans, these kids, to be even more invested in an Elsie. And it just took off. There were parades uh, in her honor. There were live theatrical events throughout the entire San Francisco, Oakland area where thousands of kids came. You're right. It feels very similar to like the Mickey Mouse Club, right? It felt exactly that kind of energy. And so I wanted to find. former members of these Aunt Elsie membership clubs, because you got to join Aunt Elsie clubs, you got pins, you got membership cards. And I was wondering, how can we track down those men and women who were members? And so we did it. We found men and women in their 70s, 80s, 90s, one woman who is 101 years old, who they were members of, of Aunt Elsie's clubs, and they saved to this day clippings of their published work. And many of them, some of them, a few of them, even credit that earliest time of seeing their name in a newspaper, of giving them that that, that push to want to be writers themselves. And a few of them did become writers.
0: No, I just, that, I love that. And and I love too, like, because she was so inviting, she, parents started writing, right? So it was like, it started with the kids, but then parents had questions and this kind of helped then... <laughs> even broad in her audience right these parents were really you know the newspaper editor kind of took a chance on her and she ended up with eight pages like a whole section and and like and so sh- you could tell that she had this way about her that made people feel comfortable and trust and she was trustworthy to them
1: yeah and I would say too I must say because I don't want to give your listeners a false impression of her being so perfect because I think there's a lot of lessons uh, in what Elsie Robinson did. Didn't do well. And what I mean by that is um, she was a workaholic um by her own estimation uh, she made herself sick uh she worked so hard that she was hospitalized uh, she contemplated suicide on more than one occasion um this is a woman who is flawed and I, and I and I do want to present her in that fullness because while there is so much in her life that I find to be impressive, and instructive. And I just love her voice and her tone and her kind of pull yourself up from the bootstraps mentality. She is all about tough love and getting the most you want out of your life. And she is full of passion. And yet there's this other part of her that gives me pause, which is where was that balance for her? Where was the ability to kind of turn things off and let her life unfold without her pushing it, without her steering it. Um, And so I feel like there's a lesson in there for all of us about dialing back when we're able to, if we can afford to. Because I think that even when Elsie made it, so to speak, she did not dial back. And I think it cost her. I think it cost her her health.
0: Yeah, there was one point... And in one of the photo, fo- I think it was in one of the photos, one of the captions you'd written, where she kind of talks about like, newspaper reporters aren't supposed to get sick, right? We're supposed to just keep going. So there was, you know, even and, and it, the public seemed to be in support, you know, she was getting letters saying, we, you know, we hope you're getting better thinking about you. But she really believed that. Part of her job was not to get sick and not to miss the job, right, oh, In those ways. All
1: seem kind of familiar now, right? I mean, people who are on, you know, social media all the time, podcasters, right? There's a need to turn out content. And what happens if we're sick, What happens if we can't post on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram? What happens if you can't do a podcast interview on the day that it's scheduled and you can't drop a new episode? I think what's so remarkable about our book, Listen World, and what's so remarkable about our subject, you know, Elsie Robinson, is that it seems odd, it seems surprising that the same issues that she faced in 1915, and then again in 1918, then throughout her career that began in 1924 and lasted more than 30 years. These are things that we're still grappling with. And I find that to be the great recipe, I hope, of what I believe has become this incredible book. Like, I'm really proud of it. And I think it's because it touches on themes that readers today Not only do they get a history jolt of fun reading about someone that maybe they hadn't heard about before, because, like we said before, who's heard of Elsie Robinson? But the big but is not only can we learn about this remarkable woman, but we can also take from it lessons that really feel all too urgent today.
0: Yes, I felt that there's very much a timeliness in this, right? And it makes, and yes, as you're reading it, and even though it is in the early 1900s, it's like, yep some of it, I'm like, some of this is still true today. We're back at it again. Um, and, and I want to talk to a little bit about how you structured this book, because you have, um, it's, it's over 300 pages, but the whole thing is not just your biography, you have the biography, but then you've given an ample amount of space for, s- to share some of her work, right? And so can you kind of, talk a little bit maybe about that decision and how you kind of structured this together um, because it is more than just this biography of her. It's also kind of introducing her work to the world.
1: I am thrilled by your question and I'm so grateful for it. So it became quite obvious that there was so much writing that Elsie Robinson did throughout her career that people would never get to read. Because one, who has that kind of time and interest? Two, because as we said earlier, it hasn't been digitized. So unless you have the hunger, which of course we did to read so much of her work, um, at every turn, we're like, oh my God, this is the best. I love what she had to say about feminism. I love what she had to say about racism and race. I love what she had to say about anti-Semitism during World War II. She had just a lot going on that were topical, but then she had a lot going on about moving forward in life even if you're scared, going forward in life even if you're fearful, what it meant to live a rich, fulfilling life. How do you define that? So she had a lot to say, and so we knew that the only way that readers today most likely would be able to love Elsie Robinson as much as we became to love her work was to literally braid her words into the manuscript so a reader wouldn't have to go look for them. And so what we did is that we crafted her story And then we found the words in her columns that would then amplify what she was going through in that moment in her life. And so what it did, and I think it actually really propels the narrative forward, it allows people to hear a biography, not just in the words of the author's. But truly, if there was a third author on the title of the, of the, of the cover of the book, it would literally be Elsie Robinson herself, because we think that her voice is literally equal to ours in telling about her. She's able to tell about herself as well, and really um, almost in real time as you're going through the book.
0: And you and you mentioned this at the end of the book as well. She never and, and sort of throughout the interview, how, why you had to do all this research. There is not an archive you can go to to find her work, right? Like, so I know like this is one of those things where you start to read, and then if if you're like you and I, you're like, oh, I want to see those archives, um, but they don't exist. Um, so, is there? Are you? I mean, is this is a whole another, maybe a whole other question? But are you working on, or is anyone working on, sort of getting that together and compiling at least some of her work to be in a, an accessible space? I would love
1: if there is a listener right now who is attached to a archive, to a university, and you have an interest in housing the Elsie Robinson archive, we have her materials to offer. We have put together the first database ever of Elsie Robinson's columns. We have done it. We have spreadsheets. They're searchable. Uh, it's you can search it by subject matter, by date, by newspaper, if it had an illustration accompanying it, if it did not, um, and of course we also we haven't touched on this either. She also wrote fiction for a while. She was clearly known for her nonfiction and her reporting, but she also wrote fiction. So we have identified where all those pieces ran. You know, I will say one thing that makes um, writing a biography of a woman. More challenging, in my view, than writing a biography of a man, and that is because there are many reasons, but one of them is, is that she didn't only write under her maiden name. For a while, she wrote under her married name, or a different iteration thereof. Maybe she used Robinson as an initial, just the R it made it complicated. And of course, men just have their name and they run with it, and that's their byline. So I feel like the research... To find all of her work was painstaking, and so if there is a listener um, who is attached to an archive and this book, this biography, "Listen World" of Elsie Robinson, sparks your interest and you want to have your patrons see uh, more of her work, I desperately don't want it to only be on my computer and on my co-author Julia's computer. It deserves to be out in the world. So we're looking. We're looking for an.
0: Archive. Right. Because you because you start to read about this and, and I'd appreciate it too at the end where you kind of talk about why, I, you know, you just give this, it's not long, but you kind of say here are the reasons why some of these people like Elsie can get lost to us, right? Like um, some of it has to do with also... It reminded me, I was at an archives and the archivist at the small liberal arts school I went to as an undergrad, but the archivist, I was looking at things and she's like, I say to professors all the time, you might not want your work. You might just throw it away. Give it to me. I will take it. Right. And that kind of thing where Elsie didn't kind of think like, I need to save this. I need to donate it. I need to put it like this is going to matter or should matter later on. And I think often women don't do that as much. I think I do
1: a lot of work and I think a lot about um grief. Um I mentioned um I only found out about Elsie Robinson because my mother uh passed away. Um a few years after my mother died, my father um, passed away. I a I live in New York. I was nearly killed on 9-11. That's a whole other story. So death, grief, loss, trauma, um, these are parts of my life. And so when I think about taking care of our legacies, um, whether or not you're a parent, it doesn't matter. Your legacy as a human being deserves to be recorded. And the idea That Elsie Robinson didn't take care of her own legacy, I think is instructive. So she was famous, and that would have been her reasoning, right? I want to preserve my legacy for generations. But she died in 1956. And I believe shortly after that, the world forgot about Elsie Robinson. And the answer is why? I have many theories, but I think what I digest, what my takeaway is, that we can all do better by our own families if we pay attention to how we want our legacies to be nurtured, how we want our legacies to be curated. And it doesn't mean that you have to partner with a capital A archive. It could just mean you're taking care of things at home So there is a paper trail. And so I feel incredibly proud that in the absence of a family member to do this on behalf of Elsie Robinson, I feel so connected to her now that I feel like I'm doing it in honor of her, even though I never met her.
0: And so, um, I you know i we could probably talk about l c forever, but I will this is a great place for me to maybe ask my final question that I usually ask, which is kind of um are there is there anything out there that either you or Julia is working on or that you kind of want to promote along with this book? um, anything you've got sort of coming up or coming down the pipeline that that last kind of shout out promotion for for you
1: well, I would say your listeners should definitely visit elsie robinson.com that will have and has information about elsie robinson uh, that go well that goes well beyond what we can get to in the book you will find more of her editorial cartoons that didn't make it Into the book, you will learn more. And um, we're just excited to get the conversation started. And so, there you can learn more. And of course, I really welcome hearing from listeners. I have been, quote unquote, pregnant with this story for quite some time. And so, now that Elsie Robinson is kind of out in the world, it is my great pleasure to connect with readers. I would love to hear what you think. So, please, you know, Email me. Uh, connect with me on social media. I'm everywhere at A Gilbert Writer, um, and my email address. You can definitely find it online, but it's Allison at AllisonGilbert.com. Very easy too. I I'm so happy to share her, and I would love to know how the book lands once you guys read it.
0: Thank you, Allison. I mean, I think the book is fascinating. She. I have yeah, I, like just reading about her life and reading about everything about her is was really amazing and fun. Again, Alison Gilbert and her co-author Julia Shears have written Listen World, How the Intrepid Elsie Robinson Became America's Most Read Woman. Thanks for talking with me for new books and popular culture.
1: So fun. Thank you so much.